Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. Hi, I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats. Before we hop into this week's episode, I want to let you know that this interview was recorded in early June before the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We don't talk much about the court in this episode, but it's important you know the context in which it was recorded. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. We've lost a lot of our self-pride. We've lost a lot of our can-do spirit. And I think the next generations bring to the table a freshness, and they bring fresh blood, they bring fresh vision, and I think they bring fresh hope. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in beginning to share responsibility now with the younger generations and doing everything we can to help them prepare themselves for lives of service and leadership. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is David Gergen, who served as a senior advisor to four American presidents. He's the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. And most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, he was the undergraduate professor who had the greatest impact on me. We have managed to stay in touch over the years, and I'm thrilled to talk to him today about his new book, Hearts Touched with Fire. David, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you, Ken. It's good to be with you. We, we stretch back, I was thinking about this, at least a quarter century, back into the mid-1990s, I think. Uh, when you were first in a classroom together and you went on to honorable service in the military. We kept up during that. And then you've, you've uh, been willing to put yourself out there on the line on, uh, through the political process. So it's been fun to watch. I, I have take great pride in all that you've accomplished, and I would thank you for all your, all your many, many services. Uh, thank you, David. You are aging both of us um, as you <laughs> as you say that out loud I am uh, reflecting on the fact that we have uh, two uh, Gen Zers on the line my producer and and sound engineer and this conversation uh, is going to be about passing the torch and as Good. I Good. As, as I was reading your book and thinking ahead to this conversation I kept coming back to um, a phrase that that you've used a few times in interviews in describing your worldview. You call yourself a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, sure. But let me me just say, I I do think we're on an unsustainable path right now as as a people, as a nation, that we've had crisis after crisis, a cascade of crises over recent years that would, in normal times, have uh, demanded a lot of public attention, and we would have made progress on the crises. And this time out, I'm afraid the crises are making mincemeat of us. Uh, We're in a much weaker position as a people than we were, say, 15 years ago. Uh, And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what is there that can help us get out of this? What what forces can we use? And I am increasingly of the view that one of the most important uh, forces for the future and where I see the glimmerings of hope over the horizon um, is among the young. And I, and I do think it's time to pass the torch increasingly from the generation that is now running the show, namely 
the, the baby boom generation. I think it's time to start passing that torch much more quickly uh, to millennials and to Gen Z. I don't want to leave out Gen X. It's the middle. That's the that's the sandwich generation, uh, and they've been denied the opportunity to, to serve at major positions of leadership in the country. I think they need more time at bat. As a matter of fairness, plus, I think a lot of them, the Gen X, are darn good. They were they were people born between 1965 and 1980. That's generally the way it's looked at, uh, and many of them are now in their 40s and 50s. So I think they're the bridge into the near term future and to trying to deal with what we're I think the rough waters ahead. But long term, long term, their future rests with the millennials and Gen Z, and it's there that I think that it's sort of make or break time. But I'm optimistic because I've had a chance to see them in classrooms, starting with you, Ken. Uh, way back when, um, I've seen people come through classrooms, and I'm increasingly impressed by the quality of young people coming back from the Afghanistan and Iraq, coming back from years in military service, uh, and the promise that they hold for the country. I think they're very similar to the World War II generation, what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, and that's the nickname that's stuck. The military veterans coming back into our civilian workforce now I think have a lot of that same discipline and commitment and patriotism that we saw in the World War II veterans. So they themselves, I think, are a unit. Some of them have succumbed to the siren songs of the far right. There are many, many others who I think uh, will want to run for office, who want to make a difference in their communities, uh, who care about service, care about national service. And I'm encouraged by that. I'm, let me just add one last thing, and then I'll stop gassing on. There are also other streams of people, young people, coming into the uh, into the arena and trying to change things. And I all think I think they also hold great promise. And namely, they are people of color, and especially black women. I think have now gained the moral high ground in so many different ways, and have been so productive. You think about you know the, the Me Too movement started by a young black woman. Or if you talk about Black Lives Matter, started by three young black women, um, there are just time after time now we see the the effort going forward. Stacey Abrams is another good example of black women who are entering the arena. And I think that holds promise as well, along with the veterans. So there's much I think we can look to. Those who young people need a lot of encouragement. They need a lot of support. It's going to be a long fight. In the years ahead, this is probably the fight of a generation. It'd take 15 years or 20 years to, to get through it. But if we apply ourselves, and if we really are, are serious about it and not just playing games, uh, I think we have a chance to turn this civic culture into something much healthier and restore the kind of trust um, in institutions and in leadership and the can-do spirit of the World War II generation. I think all those things are within reach. You have been making this forceful appeal to your generation to pass the torch, inspired, of course, by the energy and the activism of younger generations. But the problem I have with that appeal is that it only works on those willing to cede power. And so what you're left with is people jealously guarding their power, refusing to pass the torch. You see that in politics especially, but you see it elsewhere as well. So I guess it begs the question, does the torch have to be seized, or is it more of a baton relay? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, that's a really, really good question. And I, I think that, you know, Nancy Pelosi makes the argument that she, her father taught her a long time ago that if you want power, you have to seize it. That's your only choice. 
if it doesn't work otherwise. I don't believe that. You and I have lived through a period when the World War II generation started passing the torch to uh, to the baby boomers, and that started occurring back in the 1990s. They didn't cling to power. They 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 retired and retired gracefully. Uh, during that time, you know, mo- most American corporations uh, ask people over 65 to step back, uh, and they can continue to provide advice and so forth. So, but they corporations generally tend to avoid having CEOs who are over 65. Uh, and yet in politics, you know, we've got numerous leaders who are in their 70s. Um, and, of course, we've got people now entering their 80s. I've been somewhat startled recently because I've, I've made the argument publicly, and as this book has come out, I've made the argument uh, that there's a very good chance we're going to have two nominees for the presidency, one on the Republican side on Trump and one on the Democratic side and Biden, and they'll both be competing against each other. But the issue that comes up is that one of them is going to win and be governing as president in their 80s. We've never had anything like that before, and I think it's a mistake. There are individuals who are fine going into their 80s, but you can't tell what's going to happen during that time. I just turned 80, and I can just tell you, it's your future is much more unpredictable. You're more vulnerable. People who get in who are older become more cautious. Um, you know, they, they want to stick to the status quo uh, because that's what they know. But it's not what we need. We need bold leadership. We need leadership that's not complacent or is willing to accept uh, the, the path we're on. We, we simply have to get off this. So, you know, I've said, look, if it's Biden and, and, and Trump, I think both of them ought to think about stepping back and opening the door to, to, to some others. There, there are other people out there in each party. And now some of them are, are radicals. Let's just face it. There is a, there's a strong extreme wing in the Republican side, and there's a growing strong extreme wing on the Democratic side. And uh, you have to realize that, there, that as, as we open the doors to newcomers, you're going to find some who are, who are extremists. But even so, I think the bulk of the people who will be opening doors to, if we play this right, uh, will be um, productive members of society. I've had the experience, Ken, of, uh, of asking some of the smartest people I know, if the United States was participating in a poker game, and we had held one set of cards as the U.S., and then there was another, and one of our competitors was from India, one was from China, and one was from Russia. Whose hand would you like to play? Whose hand would be the best hand to play? To a person, the smart people tell me, I'd play the U.S. hand. It's, we have the high cards in the game. Our problem is we haven't been playing the cards very well. You know, people are playing low cards or outsmarting us too often, and they're hungry. Uh, and they're moving, and when we you know sit here on top of things on innovation, our capacity for innovation, our great universities, we're tearing ourselves apart about you know what conversations are woke and which ones aren't. When we ought to be you know settling down and getting some education. I agree that we still have a winning hand. We have not been playing it well, and in a in a recent interview, I believe it was with Judy Woodruff, uh, you said yeah. that as a whole, this is in quotes now, the baby boomer generation has been a disappointment. Yes. Say a little bit about that, but then I want to dive in to why and and whether it's some macroeconomic force or if there's something psychic at work. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure we know the answer to that question, but I think it's important to compare two generations and the legacy they left behind. Uh, One would be the, the, the World War II generation. 
uh, and they were not a perfect generation. They gave us Vietnam. They gave us Watergate. They were too slow in advancing uh, the rights of women. They were too slow in advancing the rights of people of color. Uh, but if you look at the overall pattern and where they left us, where America stood when, as they left the stage, they left behind an America that was the strongest since the days of ancient Rome in economic terms, in military terms, in political terms, in cultural terms. You know, we were looked to by the rest of the world as the leading nation. Many people thought it was a unipolar nation. Uh, many, you know, the Fukuyama argument that, you know, that, that basically history was over turned out to be way too optimistic. But uh, there was that sense coming out of the World War II generation years that we could do anything. We could send a man to the moon in 10 years. We, you know, that was the Kennedy pledge, and we beat the number. We came out better than 10 years. We, we had the man on the moon. And it was that spirit, I think, that they left behind, which was very important to sort of making continued progress. Now, compare that to what the baby boom generation is, is going to leave behind. They, they've been there now running things since the early 1990s. And what we have is a whole series of crises now that have left us as a angry, exhausted, frustrated people. And we're coming out of this uh, the, the period worried about the future of our democracy. We didn't worry about democracy when we had the military veterans coming out because they were so committed to democracy. But this group, you know, is more committed to, um, you know, personal gain and putting power first in front of principle, you know, in some despair about looking for how do we solve this? And that's, that's why I'm arguing I think it's time to turn to younger, younger generations. So that's what that statement comes from, Ken. I don't disagree. I'm most interested in in the underlying causes. Um, is it that that generation wasn't tested, that they were not forged by some unifying, uh, albeit traumatic, experience? Was it a generation that felt the need to uh, overcompensate for the achievements of the prior generation. The reason I'm asking is because I'm, I'm sure the lessons could convey to other generations. Look, I think one of the greatest problems we've, we have with the baby boom generation is how divided it is. The World War II generation, again, left us a more united people, and now we're deeply, deeply divided. And as, as I look at the history, and, and, and this is I'm an amateur at this, so forgive me, there are professional historians that I'm sure could make a much better argument. Um, but as I see it, the division started way back in the early childhood when you had the traditionalists who raised their children to have a certain toughness, a mental toughness, a physical toughness, because that's what the world required, you know, in the war and and the children of the World War II generations, as many of them were raised to be much more traditional. At the same time, there was a sprouting up in the midst. There were people who had a different view and wanted to change the culture, who did not accept the status quo. So what you, I think in particular the 60s, where the force behind the, the, uh, the divisions uh, came with the Vietnam War, civil rights to a lesser extent, but the Vietnam War, you know, that Vietnam War it was like an ax down the middle of the, the, the baby boom generation. Uh, and you found people who went to school in places like Texas or South Dakota or Wyoming or the western states, by and large, and some of the southern, southeastern states, by and large. They were the traditionalists. They're the ones who have supported Trump in, in many ways. They've gone, they've left behind, I'm afraid, for the moment, 
the traditional Republican Party, but they're into a bubble in which they have this sense of old-fashioned things. But, you know, the white Christians, you know, they've become nationalists. It's, so it's a complicated story. But there is a one side then who are attacking the traditions and feel we've got to move on, we've got to do better with race, we've got to do better with, on you know, how conflict, all these kind of questions. And I think what you find is it's a generation now, the baby boomers, who are not only divided, but almost helplessly divided. I just don't see the evidence that the baby boom generation can get us out of the mess we're in. You started your political career as a Republican, working for Republican administrations, and then mm-hmm. famously worked for a, a Democratic administration, right. uh, Bill Clinton's. And you have been adamant in characterizing the modern iteration of the Republican Party as as bearing little resemblance to the party uh, you you served. Yep. How did it go so badly off the rails? Well, it's been very, very hard for anybody to govern and govern successfully uh, in Washington. You pointed the finger at Washington, I think, appropriately uh, a few minutes ago. But if you go back to where I think the divisions became very much more apparent and sharper, more jagged, uh, it came in the early 90s. And that is when the World War II generation basically left the stage. The way I count this is, if you go back in history, the World War II generation began taking over things with Jack Kennedy. He was a charismatic, young, we-can-do-anything-we-can-go-to-the-moon kind of leader the first of the World War II generation to be in the White House. We had seven presidents from from Kennedy, the, at the youngest, up through George Bush Sr., the oldest, seven presidents. All seven wore a military uniform. Six of them were in the war itself. Jimmy Carter was still in the, the Naval Academy when the war ended, and he went on. He was, as a student, he graduated, and he went on to serve honorably as, uh, in the Navy. Um, so you have these seven presidents, and I think that period, in retrospect, especially the early years of that period, um, were part of a golden period in American public life. Uh, a golden period that went all the way back to the end of World War II and all, up through the, much of the 60s before we got into Vietnam and, and, and Watergate. And that's sort of how, historically, we got to the early 1990s. World War II generation turns over the, the reins to baby boomers. We then have five presidents, starting with Bill Clinton, and going up through where we are now. We've had five presidents, uh, both sides of the aisle, and none of them wore military uniform. None of them were in active service. Uh, George W. Bush, to his credit, was in the National Guard. But, you know, as, as the saying goes, it's hardly, um, uh, you know, you, you can't claim too much out of that if you're, if you're defending the great state of Texas from the state of Oklahoma. Uh, you know, so they're that period is when I think the division started up, and the and it was very very important. Clinton comes in in '92; he's a strong baby boomer. In '94, Gingrich takes power, and things start changing in the House of Representatives. Have Gingrich seizes power, and he does it very smartly. He's a, he's you know he's a determined guy. Uh, one of the things you see on the right is that they're they take their politics more seriously. It's a politics of most people and many people on the right, the strong conservative politics is a 24-7 kind of proposition. And on the left, people tend to be a little more complacent and they tend to be weekend warriors. And you get a different result when that happens. And Gingrich and company, they took control of the House of Representatives 
And then there were a number of people in the Gingrich group who got elected to the Senate, and they brought the traditions of the new the new traditions of the House. They brought over into the Senate chambers, and now we see with Trump how they you know with and and some of the recent uh, people in the Republican side how that division and divisiveness that poison has seeped in now into the White House. Uh, and it's into almost all of our institutions. It hasn't hit the courts yet, but thank goodness it hasn't hit the court. I think it's coming. But you can see on many different sides, there are just these divisions just get set in, and it's really, really hard to overcome them. Look at J.D. Vance in Ohio. He's somewhat familiar to you. Who thought that J.D. Vance would turn to, so far to the hard right uh, as he has? And this, the book he wrote didn't suggest that. It suggested, you know, a man who was very open to change and, you know, was proud of a lot of things that had happened in the past uh, and was not as radical as Vance has become. But... There he is, and for better or for worse, and some people would say for it. There are people in Ohio and outside who like to think the world of J.D. Vance, but there are people on the other side who take in a look and said, I don't think so. It feels now that everything has become political, political. and politicized, yeah. and I might take issue with your defense of the court. Yeah, the court I do think has um, has been politicized. I have some hope in John Roberts, who believes in the institution of the court and wants to protect the court. And I have some hope, perhaps misplaced, um, that that ultimately they can work this out. But I, who knows for sure. But almost every walk of life now has has been affected by, as you put it, that seeping poison. There was a recent study about Thanksgiving dinners. Um, my producer can remind me who we interviewed about it, but uh, Thanksgiving dinners in swing districts are on average 40 minutes shorter now, uh, judging by anonymized cell phone tracking, um, because people just cannot talk to each other anymore. Yeah. And I, I don't yeah. know how intentional this is in your book, but in, in the epilogue, you you talk about the five paths into the future. One of them is elected yeah. officials, but yeah. the others all implicate politics as well. Social movements, national service, voices yeah. of change. Yep. None of them are effective in this day and age without some political power behind them. And I find that enormously discouraging. And I'll go to the beginning of your book where you talk about the power of young people to energize movements. And you you yeah. start with the March for Our Lives kids. And we're having this conversation in the wake of another horrific school shooting. And I look at the years that have gone by since March for Our Lives and go all the way back to Columbine. And there has been no meaningful federal legislation. So it begs the question to me, if politics is so dominating, what hope should young people hold for for other kinds of movements, social movements and, and change movements? But I appreciate your point. And I think you speak for millions of young people who are discouraged. And they, I, I meet a lot of young people who, who say, I'd really like to make a difference in life, but I'm not sure how because all the power seems to be on the people who are the againers. And, you know, you have young people your age who throw up their hands and say, look, I, I'm not sure how much time I want to spend with this. I, I do have a career I'm pursuing. I've got a, a wife at 
who's working. We have a couple of kids. We have three kids. We've got a mortgage. We've got to meet. How can I spend my time? Uh, and why should I spend my time throwing myself into a cause that's going nowhere? Well, if I thought everybody thing was going nowhere, I would be equally discouraged. But I do believe there there are some areas in our national life which have gotten um, gotten better. And one of them, to, to I'm really impressed with, is how much quick progress we've made on gay rights. It's no longer a stigma to be gay, and people are you know increasingly. I think there's an acceptance and embrace of gay rights uh, across the board, and you find Republicans you know, will vote for it as well as Democrats. Um, and it's, it's not perfect by any means, and there are people who are retrograde on that. But I, would, I, I thought the movement for gay rights, and some of those people who led that movement came out of my classrooms, and I saw what they did. They, I had one young man who was my student who came over and said, before before I leave this school, I want to make sure I've changed your mind about gay rights or any reluctance you have. And, I, and we, we spent a lot of time talking to each other. And he was extremely persuasive. And I, I became complete convert to gay rights. And, you know, I've come, uh, I, I've made some personal, I've had a personal journey on that. So I, I grew up in the South. I was more and more traditional, more traditionalist. I had some reservations about gay rights. But now I'm, you know, I completely believe in it. And it would that would not have happened had it not been for the movement that I think so many people on the gay side did. And they very, very smartly, wisely uh, recruited a lot of non-gays to join the effort. And we've come a long way. And I, I think in the days ahead, our struggle is going to be increasingly, I think, with the fact we're a multi-ethnic society. And we're heading toward a day when there's, the white majority is going to disappear and you're going to find increasing emphasis upon this whole conspiracy theory, uh, replacement theory, as it's called, and that is that what a lot of Hispanics and others are, are coming across our borders, they're going to take away the jobs and take away the power that the white feel is there. You know, it's a white society, and that's going to, there's going to be a clash on that that's coming, and we can already see it. I think it's going to be one of the big tests. But I do think that you can find in other people like the Me Too movement has done a lot of good in the world. The AOCs of the world, I don't agree with AOC on her politics. There, A lot of her politics are too far left from me, but I celebrate the fact that she's in the arena and trying to stir things up. There are a lot of young people now who are going to the barricades and are willing to fight for it because they really feel strongly that this is going to be their country. And if, you, and if we leave behind irreversible changes in the climate, you know, we're going to condemn our kids and our grandkids to, to lives that are going to be far more meager than the lives we, we're experiencing now, and a lot more anxiety and a lot more fear. So, uh, you know, I think we ought to be very, very aware of how tough it is. We ought to be quite candid about how hard this is going to be. You know, there are going to be a lot of lost fights in the years ahead. But if you keep at it, I think what you see is the history of, the, uh, of America is one of a people who've had existential threats since the beginning of our republic. We had an existential threat in the Revolutionary War. We almost lost that war. You know, George Washington lost the first six out of the first eight battles uh, that his army went into. And people thought it, it's over, and yet we came back. We had an ex the Civil War, you know, could have left us broken and divided for decades upon decades upon decades. And it took us a long time to get through it, but we did. We survived that existential threat. The Great Depression, and then you go on to World War II. You look at those four, and John Meacham, the historian, 
has written wonderfully about this. But if you look at those four existential threats to the nation, in each one we eventually overcame it. And the sort of the bright side won. And that's not been true of some other countries. We Every time we've had a real test, whether we're going to open our doors farther to voting, for example, in terms of rights, the side that has expanded and wanted to expand the rights of our individuals, the rights of blacks, the rights of women, that sort of thing, have eventually, those sides have eventually won. It has taken a long time, that's for sure. You look at Seneca Falls for women's rights. It, you know, it took more than half a century for women to realize the aspirations of Seneca Falls. Uh, and you obviously look at the, the racial issues that we're still so laggard in. But we're making progress if you look at it overall. And it's worth the fight. If, if, if the younger generations gives up the fight, God help us, because I do think that the authoritarian side of American life will come to the fore. Well, we think a lot alike, and I'm really glad that you use the progress of the LGBTQ plus movement in particular as as your counterpoint for my short-term pessimism, mm-hmm. because I do the yeah. same thing. I, I'm, a, I'm a short-term pessimist, but I, you know, I think the next few years are going to be really, really rough. The one indispensable ingredient for any of this, and this comes through in your book, yeah. is leadership. And the subtitle, in yeah. fact, is is how great leaders are made. You don't go that deep into the subtitle, but you make a point there that great leaders, well, they may have certain fundamental attributes, but they're not born. They can be trained. Yeah, they can be made. There are leaders who are born or would be leaders who are born with some traits, but they're underdeveloped. Eisenhower, for example, came from this family. I had almost no money there. He had four kids, five kids. He lived in a one-bedroom house in, 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 in Abilene. But very early on, kids in the neighborhood liked to come over and play football, touch football with, with Ike, and they turned over the organization of the games to him, and he became the star. And that, he was going to become, a, I don't know, a professional, but he, he was a very, very strong athlete until he went to West Point, and he had an injury there on football, and he had to give it up, and he became a coach. But that, he had a natural bent toward it. But even Ike... Um, needed a lot of mentoring, a lot of development before he became the leader, the four-star leader and the most respected man in America, because he had to—he—he uh, he had a mentor named Fox Connor. Eisenhower had gone to uh, West Point. He had not been a good student. He'd been a good athlete. He was not a good student and didn't seem very promising. But then he had an assignment, and at one point he was thinking about leaving the military because he seemed so stuck in, in place. But then he got an assignment in, in Panama, and there he met Fox Connor, who was a, his superior uh, officer. And Connor took him under his wing and, and opened his eyes to you know the books about leadership from, you know, from the ancients uh, all the way up and helped, had him study. And then I really got, he really got enlightened and motivated, passionate, he went to the command general staff school, and he was at the top of his class. He became a real leader over those few years, and then he had you know time in the trenches that made a big difference. So I think if you look at most major leaders, it's been a journey. It hasn't come quickly. It's, it's taken time, and usually you've gotten knocked down two or three times. They've had some crucibles in their lives. They've, they face some really, really hard things, but they come through it, and uh, they become stronger for it. So I'm a... Um, I am a believer that just as societies can change, so can individuals, and you can strengthen yourself uh, for the journey. And 
I devoted about the last two-thirds of the book, I think, Ken, to, to be a pragmatic and a practical playbook for young aspiring leaders. I thought people in their 20s and 30s, yeah, there are lots of books about how to be you know, successful as a CEO at 50 or 40 or 50. There are not very many books out there about how to, how to forge your path ahead when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, which I think is the formative period for so many people. Um, and what I'm trying to write about is, okay, here's some of the things you need to think about. You need to dig deeper on your own. But here's some of the experiences I've had. Here's some of the stories that I think make a difference, uh, whether my stories or you know historical study stories. But one of the episodes I quote, or one of the one of my favorite quotes, comes from Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, uh, who was an outstanding woman, outstanding woman. And she wrote a letter to their teenage son, John Quincy, when things were going badly and and it looked like America was not going to survive as a republic. And she said, you know, basically her argument was adversity is what brings out the best in us. From periods of real hardship come the statesmen of the future. And I believe that. I, I believe that, you know, just as we've seen our POWs like John McCain and James Stockdale, the times they went through in Vietnam and Hanoi Hilton, you know, how tough it was for them. But they emerged stronger than they went in. Look at look at Mandela, 27 years of isolation, basically. And he came out of Robin Island stronger than he went in. What you find to people who go through crucibles, the research, and there's a fellow named Daniel Seligman, who's the father of positive psychology. You know, psychology traditionally has looked at what's wrong with people. Seligman said we ought to be focusing on instead on what's right with people and how you can build them up. And what Seligman found in this research was that when people have cru- real crucibles, they say FDR and you know, just had devastating you know, case of polio and went to the sidelines and could never walk again. And that's what I mean by coming through a crucible. There are three groups who come through crucibles. One is the group that comes through, they're knocked on their tail, and they never manage to get up. They, they have just have grievances the worst the rest of their lives. They have dark clouds over them. They just never manage to get back. It's a smaller group, but it's important. Then you have a second group of people who come through crucibles who do recover, and regain their old resilience, but over over about a year's time, they become like what they were before, but not much, not advanced. And then there's a third group, which is a special group, who get knocked down. They pay a huge price. They have to work hard, desperately hard to get back. They're resilient enough not only to regain who they were, but they come through it with a greater sense of moral purpose. They they come through asking, I've got, how can I now devote my life to doing something meaningful? That's what Reagan did after he was shot. He said, now, you know, he was. He said, I'm spared by God, and I'm giving the rest of my life to God and doing things that I think will advance my religious beliefs. And that's the group of people, the people who come through there with moral purpose. Those are the people who become the great, I think, the leaders of the future. And the ones we see, like Zelensky and Ukraine, you have to ask yourself in America today, where are our Zelenskys? Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.
often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the Presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You don't directly invoke the great man theory of history. I don't think you use that phrase, but... Well, I do to say I think that the great man theory is less important. It's still important to have individuals, but it's less important than it once was. The prevailing wisdom in historical studies of leadership, of course, is that individuals don't actually matter that much. It's waves of larger social movements which carry events along and and people are caught up in them and and rise to the crest of those waves and we identify them later as leaders but it's really broad historical currents that shape the times how do you react to that given your study of individuals sure i, I well i have a somewhat different take on it and that is uh um and individuals will always matter, and they will always count. And I, I don't buy into the determinist school um, that, say, Tolstoy represented, and he argued that uh, individuals are slaves of history. Tolstoy in War and Peace basically argues that had Napoleon not gone in to Russia, invaded Russia as a, as a French general, there would have been a different French general who would have gone. I just don't hold that. I, I think we have individual agency. Uh, in life, and I think the, the future is often determined by what we decide, not not not, not the way we're necessarily riding in. And on and the question of you know, do individuals matter? The uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. I quote him in the book, and he said, "Look, in 1932-33, there was a young British politician who came to New York to give talks, and he was uh, in a cab on Park Avenue, got out on the wrong side of the street, given the, the differences in driving." and got hit by a car and was damn near killed. Fourteen months later, there was an American politician who was riding in an open car in uh, Miami when a gunman came in point-blank range, tried to shoot him, and had it not been for a woman who jarred the arm of the gunman, would have killed him. Now, Schlesinger's question is this. What if that young British politician in New York, Winston Churchill, had died that night on the streets of New York? And what if that American politician in that open car in Miami, Franklin Roosevelt, would have died at the assassin's hand? Everyone who looks at that question says Britain would not have been able to get through the war with the way it did without Churchill, that he gave voice to the British lion, uh, that it was incredibly important. And the, uh, the alternatives in Britain at that time were people who all wanted to basically uh, sign peace and get the hell out. Uh, they wanted to give up a surrender, and Churchill said, no, no, we're not doing that. He, he led that. So uh, those are two examples of individuals who mattered a lot. Now, you've got to complete the argument in terms of the where we find ourselves in the 21st century, and that is that individuals still matter, but increasingly in organizations and in public life, it's not the man on the white horse. It's not that who comes and saves us, 
what we need are people who are much better at constructive collaboration, and that is to work with others uh, to accomplish something. There's an old African proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I think that proverb captures a lot of the idea that if you're going to make progress, you need to be able to collaborate and work with others because there's no one single person who can do it anymore. The world is too complex and we're too interdependent that, you know, look at the supply chain problem we've had for how interdependent, how we're all tied to things that are really hard to, you know, you can't just break them apart. But that constructive collaboration is increasingly the answer in so many fields of work, whether it's in scientific research, you know, things are not, or in innovation, you know, things are not just done in a garage anymore. They're done in within places like Silicon Valley. We've got a lot of people who are trying to come up with innovative solutions. To me, what captures this in presidential terms, if you think about John Kennedy, one of the most memorable photographs of John Kennedy as president, He's in the Oval Office, alone, at dusk, hunched over a table and what apparently is a, is a globe. And it's as if the weight of the world is upon him, that he, this individual, has to be a man on a white horse. And the, he had to rise to the great man theory. That's the view of the past. More recently, if you think about the photograph that captured the Barack Obama's presidency very, very well, is is Obama down in the Situation Room where we're chasing Osama. And there in that photograph, he has not just Obama, it's the Secretary of State, it's the Secretary of Defense, it's his CIA director, it's his White House Chief of Staff. All those people are there collaborating together, feeling their way along. It's not just Obama himself in a study by himself meditating. It is a group of people who are together trying to solve a problem and did solve a problem working with the U.S. military. So that's why I say we still need great individual leaders. Uh, They're really, really important to us. But in terms of solving the big social problems of our day, you also need to work in collaboration. You need to find people who can not only lead up, they can manage their bosses well, but can lead down and manage their teams well, but can also lead horizontally by collaborating with a lot of other forces. I'm so glad you, you've you drawn that out because otherwise there's a fundamental tension between this idea of the, the indispensable leader on the white horse yes. and the need to pass the torch. I feel like too many people in Washington see themselves as indispensable. Oh, I think that's right. But as the saying goes, the graveyards are full of people who are indispensable. Right. Your observations on on leadership, I think, are probably the most lasting impressions on me, a reader, and I hope on uh, younger readers. And this one from Lao Tzu, um, it's oft quoted, but bears repeating again. You quote Lao Tzu saying, a leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we did it ourselves. Let's end with your observations on that. Well, I, I, uh, I find that there are many people who've given up and exhausted and I think are frustrated and don't want to get in the arena. I think that time is more critical now than any time in our, since we've been alive. Again, we're needed more now than ever. 
that to, to preserve our democracy, to strengthen our democracy, we're perilously close to the edge. But we're not going to get there if we have sort of people who are yelling at us and screaming at us and uh, and trying to bully us into uh, solutions or come up with these radical notions that seem so threatening uh, to large chunks of our population. We do need people who are going to come forward and are not looking for personal glory. They care a lot about the this institutions, our institutions, and people. And, I, and the ones that people I admire so much are those who are saying, you don't have to go to Washington, D.C. to make a difference. In fact, I tell students today, Ken, if, unless you've got a terrifically interesting or different kind of job, don't go to Washington to launch your career. You know, stay in your home state and make a difference there. Work at the state level or, indeed, work at the, the city level. I think that's where the real changes are going to come. They're going to come, yes, for some from the top down, but a lot are going to come from the bottom up. And people who sort of, you know, who you find themselves, you know, working together in a variety of different causes. I think in particular, if we have a robust program of national service, that we would be greatly aided by that. National service would tell a young person between the ages of 18 and 24, Come give a year back to your country. Give a year back to your community. And if you do that, we'll give you a year off your student debt. And if you give us a couple of years, we'll give you a couple of years. And if you'd like, we'll sit with you. If, you're, if you grew up in rural America, we'll set up a, a place for you to volunteer and work in, in urban America so you learn what it's like and get an understanding. Why do we have so much violence on the streets of urban America? People who live in Amer- urban, uh, rural America need to understand what's going on in the cities. And, and alternatively... People who grew up in the cities need to need to spend some time out in the countryside, in the rural America, or in the in, our, in the woods, or whatever. But this is a big, complex country, and if you really want to understand and make a difference, it's important that you you do understand the passions of our time and you throw yourself in. I celebrate that quote about the best leaders are the ones who quietly get change made, and then when others wake up, they think they did it themselves. That's fine. The critical thing is to make sure we make the kind of progress. And so that, the quote you just made, I, I, I one of my favorite, and one I have to end the book with, um, is from Teddy Roosevelt about the importance of the man, and he would say today, the, and the woman in the arena. The place of honor in our society is not among those who sit on the sidelines and carp and criticize and you know whistle and one thing and another. The real honor belongs to those who get in the arena and give their all uh, to improving the quality of life in this country uh, and making us all proud of what we can be. We've lost a lot of our self-pride. We've lost a lot of our can-do spirit. And I think the next generations bring to the table a freshness, and they bring fresh blood, they bring fresh vision, and I think they bring fresh hope. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in beginning to share responsibility now with the younger generations and doing everything we can to help them prepare themselves for lives of service and leadership. David, thank you so much for your contribution to this conversation. Hearts touched with fire. Uh, We'll link to it in the show notes. It has been great catching up with you. Let's do catch up some more, Ken. I I enjoyed talking with you so much, and you're you're asking some very, very good questions. I was scratching my head. What am I going to say to this? But uh, that was terrific. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, David. Okay, take care. Thanks again to David for joining me. Make sure to check out his book, Hearts Touched with Fire. The link is in the show description. 
You can follow David on Twitter at David underscore Gergen. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.